Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelup. This week, after a bruising primary that saw the incumbent knocked out what was one of Washington's reliably conservative districts, now has a Democrat in Congress. We'll go one-on-one with Representative Marie Glusenkamp Perez. Also, insurrection at the Capitol two years later. I'm telling you, if Pence came, we're going to drag through the streets. You politicians are going to get drug through the streets. Some of the rioters still branding themselves as patriots. Plus, state lawmakers about to convene, and with far less money coming in, they'll likely have to craft a budget that includes some significant cuts. And three heartbeats away from the presidency, Senator Patty Murray takes on a new role. All of that coming up this hour, but first... It is not happening. And as it's been said, we need to get to a point where we start evaluating what life after Kevin McCarthy looks like. That's conservative firebrand Representative Lauren Boebert of Colorado as the fight over who will be the next Speaker of the House continues. And as of this taping, there have been 13 votes with no selection made. Kevin McCarthy has effectively given away the store. And as we said at this taping, no one has become the Speaker. Joining me now is ABC's Andy Field. And regardless of the ultimate outcome, whoever becomes Speaker is going to have a very difficult time wrangling that conservative caucus. One of the biggest things that these rebels who did not want Kevin McCarthy to have uh, was the power to stay in office. They basically wanted to fire him at will. And now uh, apparently there's an agreement, although we don't have all the details yet, that any one member of the House can bring up at any time this motion that would basically say, let's have a vote and see if we still want Kevin McCarthy to be Speaker of the House. Certainly Democrats could bring that if they wanted to, but if some rebel member of his own party brings it up, it's going to tie up the chamber for quite some time. And we've also seen that there are a number of other issues. They, of course, want these investigations into Joe Biden guaranteed and into Joe Biden's son. They want investigations into Anthony Fauci. It just goes on and on and on. Very little of it has to do with anyone's daily life. But there's one thing that that really threatens to literally crater the economy. And We're told, but again, we don't have all the details on this, and if this is true, that Kevin McCarthy had made some kind of deal to say, uh, you're not going to get a clear, clean debt ceiling raising when you need to do that, which means that there's going to be strings attached to it. You're going to have to cut the budget here. You're going to have to cut Social Security. You're going to have to cut something. The House doesn't have the power to do that by itself. It has to go past the Senate and past President Biden. None of those two things are likely. And if you have a stalemate on the debt ceiling and you get to the point where the U.S. doesn't have the power to borrow any money anymore because Congress didn't give the U.S. Treasury that power, that could mean that the full faith and credit of the United States is no longer any good, that the U.S. will have defaulted on those bonds because it doesn't have any power to keep borrowing money to pay for those things. And that is a huge, huge problem. That is an extinction-level event for the economy. And yet there are some Republicans that are demanding that power. We don't know that Kevin McCarthy's given it to him, but if he has, that's going to be a very dangerous thing going down the line to the end of the year. We saw this about 10 years ago with Mitch McConnell, then Senate Majority Leader, saying that the debt ceiling is not a hostage worth shooting, but a hostage worth taking. But it's just the uncertainty that could tank the markets, correct? Look what it did the last time around. The the actual credit rating of the United States went down for the first time in centuries, which makes it harder for the U.S. to borrow money, makes it more expensive for the U.S. to borrow money. It basically burdens every American taxpayer. They're really playing Russian roulette with the economy by even bringing these things up. 
But uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, apparently wants this job so badly that he may have indeed uh, given some of that power to some of his members. Again, we don't have the whole layout of what he has conceded to convince of all those 20 members, uh, more than a dozen of them, to come over to his side. We certainly will get a clearer picture when all this is over. But at this point, it certainly looks clear that Kevin McCarthy finally has a path to actually winning the Speaker's office that he basically moved into more than a week ago. So even if it's not the debt ceiling, there's not much Republicans can do because, as you mentioned, Democrats still control the Senate and the White House. So anything pushed by the Republicans is likely to just be dead on arrival. It's going to be dead on arrival, but there are certain things they have to do, like they have to pass a spending bill. Had the Democrats not pushed this before they lost power in the House, we would be stuck in a government shutdown right now because the House can't get it together to even elect a a speaker so they can do their business. So let's say, for example, they had passed a temporary spending bill that would have run out this week. Nothing would happen. Government would cease to function because the House wasn't functioning, and you need both houses of Congress in order to to pass these temporary bills and and even a long-term bill, which is what they did indeed do in December before they adjourned with the Democrats in control of the House. Moving on to the next subject, it looks like President Joe Biden heading to the southern border. This seems like a victory for Republicans because immigration has become one of their top issues. What is the president going to be doing down there? Well, he says he's going to be talking to local officials, to talking to the shelters, to talking to aid agents to find out firsthand what are the issues, what do they need, and what else he can do as president to give it to him. Clearly, he doesn't need to go to the southern border to know these things. He can read uh, the reports that he gets from his own people. He's talked to them. People have come to the United States. Many of these trips that Republicans have made have basically been political stunts and political events that haven't really gotten much done. And of course, the president continues to say that uh, what he wants to do is to get Republicans to respond to his ideas on how to fix the border permanently, to add more officers there, to change the laws, to make it uh, tougher. And of course, he's done some of that on his own by uh, telling uh, some nationalities uh, from Cuba and other points south that you can't, if you enter here illegally, we're just going to send you back home. And that he is making provisions for some of these folks to come in legally, but they have to apply legally to do it. So in many ways, he's applying some of the methods that Donald Trump used right now after all this pressure and the criticism that his administration hasn't been doing enough. And so we'll be seeing some of these changes because even the president at this point is seeing that the facilities and the people at the border are being overwhelmed by this influx of migrants. All of this with the backdrop of the court fight over Title 42. Yeah, that's going to the Supreme Court in February. It's really interesting that this fight really isn't at this point over whether they can keep Title 42, which came into effect during World War II. And it was something that Donald Trump used basically to keep people who have infectious diseases out of the country. And they used it during the pandemic to basically reject asylum seekers saying, sorry, you know, we would use the regular asylum laws, except for the fact that there's a pandemic. So you're just going to have to stay in your own country. We're not letting you in. The Biden administration really has kind of been hands off on this. It was the CDC last spring that said we don't need it anymore. And then there were other operations saying, "Okay, well, we're suing the government. And that's why we've had this hold of getting rid of it for so long. And of course, the Supreme Court said, well, now we're just going to rule on whether states actually have the jurisdiction to sue about this here. Not that 
Title 42 is right or wrong. That's not what this case is about. It's about whether the states have the power to do it. So they've kind of kept it in there temporarily. But Chief Justice John Roberts, in issuing this statement, along with the rest of the court, saying we're going to hear the arguments in February, he said there's nothing that President Biden can't do on his own if he just wants to end it by himself right now. President Biden hasn't done that. And they've been very cagey about this in the Biden administration, saying, well, we're just going to follow the court orders until this thing plays itself out. ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. We have to take a quick break. But when we come back, the legislative session about to begin in Olympia. But can state lawmakers agree on a budget with reduced tax revenue? When the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelo. Well, despite the chaos in the other Washington, which seems to be having trouble just getting started with the 118th Congress here in Washington state, the legislative session is scheduled to start next week. And it doesn't look like there's going to be any trouble getting it going, but there are a lot of things that lawmakers have to get done, not the least of which is a budget. To talk about that and many other things, I'm joined now by Paul Query, editor of the Washington Observer. And uh, I guess first off, let's start with that budget because there's any number of things that the legislature has to pay for and where that money's coming from, somewhat in question. The state's in relatively good fiscal shape. But the governor's administration has negotiated new contracts with various state employee unions. You know, those involve fairly substantial raises for state employees, and that's going to take a big, uh, big chunk out of that extra revenue. There's also the question of the capital gains tax that's um, currently in front of the Supreme Court. And if the court were to rule it an unconstitutional income tax, that would punch a hole in the budget. So how much money would we be talking about if that capital gains tax gets struck down? You're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. So it's a pretty substantial chunk of the budget. And so where would they have to cut? Obviously, that's a, a, a lot of money. Yeah, that's. I think that's, a, you know, that'd be an interesting question. They've got they've got some wiggle room to work with. Um, I think that would make, you know, the budget writers lives more difficult. Um, they've had a lot of pandemic relief money to play with over the last couple of years, which has made their jobs a little bit easier. But at the same time, we've seen the revenue forecasts come out in the last couple of quarters, and they're going to be dropping off pretty significantly, aren't they? People are pulling back a little bit. Washington's very reliant on um, the sales tax for its revenue. And there's also a fairly substantial amount of revenue from the real estate excise tax. And the real estate market has cooled off considerably as interest rates have gone up. So, yeah, things aren't quite as flush as they have been in recent years. In the past, we've seen special sessions called because the lawmakers couldn't reach a budget. That was usually during the majority coalition caucus era. Are we expecting that this time around? Because Democrats have majorities, significant majorities in both chambers. I can't imagine they're not going to come to an agreement. Uh, I would say I think that that's relatively unlikely they don't get out of town on time because of what you described. I mean, you've got one party in power. You've got fairly substantial majorities. But also, I've been watching uh, the legislature for more than 20 years now, and in the non-election year, historically, there have been a lot of special sessions. In addition to the budget, there's any number of other issues that lawmakers are going to have to deal with, whether it's dealing with the ongoing response to the Blake decision. We have that big recycling bill that was announced by a number of lawmakers uh, this past week, and then the issue of abortion rights. So let's take each one of those, because those, I think, are some of the top issues that lawmakers will have to deal with. What about the Blake decision? Because when that got struck down, which basically invalidated 
invalidated all convictions of simple possession of drugs, lawmakers were scrambling. They were scrambling, and the thing that they passed was sort of a temporary fix, and that temporary fix is due to expire this year. So they've got to come up with a more permanent solution. I haven't seen a a really specific proposal yet that's likely to pass, Um, but you can uh, can pretty much count on the idea that committee leaders and ranking members of the relevant committees in the House and the Senate are are putting their heads together to try and find an agreement on that issue. And Senator Monka-Dinkra seems to be the Democratic leader on this, and ever since that Blake decision was handed down, the push from her has been largely towards treatment and and less swords enforcement certainly they want a more treatment focused less law enforcement focused approach to this and it'll be interesting to see um you know whether they prevail in this uh republicans thought that they could make pretty significant traction on this issue in the election last year and that just didn't really happen speaking of the election democrats actually gained one seat in both chambers how's that expected to change the calculus so i think that the what that's likely to do is um sort of push the caucuses a little bit further to the left than they were and i think that's especially true in the senate There's a pretty strong moderate block of the Democratic caucus in the Senate. And I think you'd have to say that Senator-elect Sharon Shoemake from Bellingham pulls that caucus a little bit further to the left and and maybe weakens that moderate block a little. Moving on to the next issue we were talking about, we saw this big recycling bill that a number of lawmakers pushed forward this past week. Obviously an environmental issue. Jay Inslee, uh, an environmental governor first, more than anything. Uh, What are we expecting to see there? So that's a doozy of an issue. Recycling is kind of the unrinsed, sticky beer bottle of environmental policy. There's just a lot of big (laughs) players there. Got big soda, you've got big groceries, and they're wary of a, a system like Oregon's where you can bring back all of your bottles for a 10 cent deposit. That puts the grocery stores in the recycling business, which they wouldn't necessarily be happy about. The garbage haulers are, you know, have an interest here because they currently get paid to haul away and sort and sell all of that stuff that people toss in the big blue bins. At the end of the day, that proposal is likely to move somebody's cheese and they won't be happy about it. There's a reason that that hasn't happened in past years. Bills like that have died in each of the past few years. So does it have a chance this session? Oh, I think so. I mean, if you looked at that rollout at the aquarium, you know, that's uh, uh, Representative Liz Berry, who's the new chair of the Labor and Workplace Standards Committee. And she got that deal done between Lyft and Uber and the Teamsters last year. That was a pretty heavy lift. And on the Senate side, it's sponsored by um, Christine Rolfus, who's the chair of the Senate Ways and Means Committee, and she's accustomed to cutting the deal on the budget every year. So, you know, there's some horsepower behind it. You've seen similar bills pass in California and Colorado last year. There's a fairly substantial amount of pressure, particularly on the big beverage companies, Coke and Pepsi, to sort of clean up their waste footprint. And so, you know, folks may be looking to, to make a deal, but it's going to be it's going to be complicated and difficult. And finally, the issue of abortion rights. This obviously came down this past year when the U.S. Supreme Court in that Dobbs decision overturned Roe versus Wade. Washington, a very liberal state, abortion rights are codified in state law, but not in the state constitution. And you saw Governor Jay Inslee this past summer 
push forward a proposed constitutional amendment to guarantee abortion rights. I guess the first question is, wouldn't that be redundant? And the second is, does it have any chance of passage? Abortion rights are in state law. Um, the voters spoke on that issue twice, uh, most recently in 1991. You're still going to get a push um, from folks to put it in the Constitution. That that uh, constitutional amendment has been proposed. It was sponsored by uh, Senator Karen Kaiser in the Senate. To put a constitutional amendment on the ballot in Washington, you need a two-thirds majority in both the House and the Senate, and it needs to go in front of in front of the voters. In this case, it's probably not the voters that would be the issue. It's getting to that supermajority, which would require some Republican votes in both the Senate and the House. And it remains to be seen whether um, there are any folks on that side of the aisle who would be willing to support that measure. So bottom line, what are you expecting from this legislative session? You know, I think actually the big issue that we haven't really talked about is housing policy. There's a big push to do various things to try and stimulate the development of of the housing in the private market. And on that looks like streamlining permitting processes and getting rid of zoning restrictions that prevent the development of multifamily housing in large parts of the state. And then the governor's also floated the idea of uh, $4 billion in bonds to pay for um, low-income housing. So, I, I mean, I, I think players in that arena are really looking to strike some sort of grand bargain to address that problem. So I think that that's really uh, an issue that, and I'm looking at the committee schedule for next week, just, you know, which sort of shows you what folks want to work on right away. And I'm seeing a lot of housing bills moving very quickly. All right, Paul Query, editor of the Washington Observer. Thank you so much for your time and insight. All right. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Happy to be with you. Speaking of state politics, Washington Democrats will soon have a new leader. State Party Chair Tina Podlodowski says she will not seek re-election. She has served in that capacity since 2017 when she ousted incumbent Jackson Ravens. During her tenure, Democrats expanded their majorities in Olympia and flipped the 3rd Congressional District. A new state party chair will be selected by state Democrats on January 28th. We have to take another quick break, but coming up next, Senator Patty Murray, no longer just a senator. Are you prepared to be president of the United States? When the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Well, another layer in the glass ceiling has been broken. You will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office upon which you are about to enter. So help you God. I do. Congratulations. Congratulations. Well, despite the chaos over in the House, the Senate seems to be getting things in order, and they have elected the first woman as President Pro Tem, third in line to the presidency. Who is that? Senator Patty Murray. Joining me now is Northwest News Radio's Ryan Harris. And Ryan, this is a significant moment in history. Yes, and in fact, Senator Murray, the Democrat and senior U.S. Senator from here in Washington State, made quite a few points about assuming the role of Senate President Pro Tem and being the first woman to do so. And she went all the way back to when she first decided to run. And she says there were a couple of things that prompted her. She says one of those was watching an all-male Senate Judiciary Committee question Anita Hill about sexual harassment during Clarence Thomas's Supreme Court confirmation hearing and thinking that she would have asked different questions and would have come from a different perspective. Now, it's also well known here in Washington State that uh, one of the reasons she run, in fact, it's where we got the phrase mom in tennis shoes, was when a male state lawmaker told her that she couldn't 
didn't make a difference because she was just a mom in tennis shoes. And so that was really what inspired her to run. To make a difference for my country, to change Congress. I hope that when young women now see me in this position, they see they can accomplish anything they set their minds to. I hope they see that they not only belong in Congress, but that their voices are needed here in Congress. We need their perspectives and their insight. So what did Murray say about the role of Senate President Pro Tem? Well, firstly, you know, it is a lot of procedural stuff. I will preside over the Senate in the absence of the vice president, assign bills that we send to the president's desk. And this role puts me third in line in the presidential line of succession. It is a responsibility that I'm very honored to take on for my country and for Washington State. And of course, Murray pointing out that she is now third in line for the presidency with all the chaos in the House that you mentioned. Uh, As long as the House was without a speaker, she was technically second in line for the presidency. So I asked her point blank. Are you prepared to be president of the United States? On the off chance that that day happens, I'm doing everything I can to prepare myself, making sure that I know the issues of the day, both domestically and foreign, keeping up to speed, being briefed and knowing what I would need to do should that day ever happen. Now, this is largely a ceremonial role given to the senior member of the majority caucus, as we mentioned earlier. So what does she plan on doing? How does she plan on handling this? Because this doesn't really change a whole lot functionally. No. And in fact, I mean, she'll still have her same vote in the Senate. Really, it's a lot of, uh, you know, banging the gavel and deciding which senator to call on when they ask to take the floor. Again, a lot of procedural stuff. I mean, if the Senate passes a bill, it's the president pro tem who signs it and sends it off to the White House, provided it's also been passed to the House. So there are some official duties there. I don't want to say so much to call them ceremonial, but they are certainly important in terms of the procedure of, you know, going back to our old civics lessons, when a bill becomes a law. This really doesn't change anything for Washington State other than a little bit of prestige. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, you know, being the first woman in the position not only uh, is historic, but it does, as you mentioned, bring prestige to Washington State. Uh, But, you know, it's also another feather in Senator Murray's cap. Uh, And I didn't get the opportunity to ask her the other day, but at some point, you know, this begs the question, uh, Senator, when do you plan to run for president? Don't know if she's interested <laughs> in the job at all or has any plans, but it's certainly worth asking that question. Well, she's been in politics for a long, long time, was first elected to the Senate in 1992. So she's just started her, I guess it would be her sixth term. Uh, she's been around for quite a while, has the seniority, and why would you want to give that up? No, I totally agree with you there. I mean, it's like uh, working at a job where you're making a, a decent salary and you have good benefits and you've built up to, let's say, three or four weeks of paid vacation because of your seniority. You don't want to move to a job where you're paid less and only have two weeks of vacation. Similar idea for Senator Murray, because she's in a position where she's right behind the the Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer of New York. She can pretty much also have her pick of uh, committee positions, and she has at times been chair of the Budget Committee, which is a powerful one. Uh, You know, she's uh, been on the Health Committee there as, as chairman of that. So it's not only committee positions, but which ones that she wants to chair. And another thing that, you know, just occurred to me, 
you know, sitting in that chair, she's the one that has to acknowledge when a senator stands up and wants to speak. And in a way, there's a little bit of power there. I mean, she's certainly not just going to flatly turn down Republicans from an opportunity to speak. But if she wants to give priority to members of her own party when more than one wants to speak at the same time, that's up to the president of the Senate to do that, and that will be in Patty Murray's hands most of the time because it's a fill-in position for when the vice president, who is officially also the president of the Senate, is not there. Well, how often do we see the vice president there? She was there the other day to swear in the new members, to swear in Patty Murray as the pro tem. And then occasionally, if she needs to break a tie or something very important comes up, especially with the Democrats in such a, a slim majority, uh, you know, sometimes a, a, a vice presidential tie break vote is needed. But most of the time, it'll be Patty Murray sitting there as it was Senator Patrick Leahy before her for many years. All right. Northwest News Radio's Ryan Harris. Thank you so much for your time. Glad to do it, Jeff. We have to take another quick break. But when we come back, Washington's third congressional district sent a Democrat to D.C. for the first time in more than a decade. Representative-elect Marie Glusenkamp Perez joins us when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Poge. Look, Congress is getting underway, sort of, despite the vote for Speaker or the multiple votes for Speaker. But nevertheless, there is a new representative from Washington State heading to Washington, uh, heading to Washington, D.C., that is. That's Representative-elect Marie Glusenkamp Perez, who won in the 3rd Congressional District. It's the first time in more than 10 years that a Democrat is representing that district. And joining me now is Representative-elect Glusenkamp Perez. First off, thank you so much for your time. Happy to be here, Jeff. Thank you. Let's start way back before the campaign and before you even got into Congress. What inspired you to run? Well, uh, I live in a rural part of the district in the Columbia River Gorge and uh, know my community pretty well. I knew who should have my predecessor, Jamie Herr Butler's yard signs up and who shouldn't. And I saw that folks weren't putting her sign up and a whole bunch of new folks were putting up a bunch of Joe Kent yard signs. And I started watching him on YouTube and realized this was a guy with some really, really terrible ideas and quite a bit of support in certain corners and um, felt like he might make it through the primary. And we did not have a Democrat who could answer his variant of extremism. Uh, So I decided to throw my hat in the ring. This was the guy who was talking about arresting Anthony Fauci for murder, defunding the FBI. Um, He wanted to ban all immigration for 20 years to reestablish a white majority. We had never seen someone with this level of bad idea in our district before. So it it, it was just a non-starter for me to to let this guy um, represent my community. And, you know, I, I knew that he didn't share our values. It is a very conservative district. In fact, after the 2020 census, it was gerrymandered in a way to be protective of Jamie Herrera Butler. Obviously, she lost in the primary, and then you won in the general. It's going to be a tough re-election fight. I know we're getting way ahead of ourselves here, but that, that's going to be tough in two years. It is, yeah, you know, but I think um, I've demonstrated that I share the values of this district. You know, I work in the trades. My husband and I own an auto repair and a machine shop. You know, I come from a long line of folks that work in the woods in Washington state. And um, I have shown a, a commitment to doing the work that it takes to to build a better America, not a more partisan one. I think we're all really, really tired of just the isolation that comes from hanging out on Facebook with weirdos and not 
our neighbors. We, we just want a functioning country again. So as you look forward to your term in office, what are some of your goals? Well, one of the big reasons I ran, you know, supporting the trade, supporting small businesses, and one of the best pieces of legislation to do that is what's known as the right to repair bill. So we're seeing this movement go on where bigger corporations are starting to install chips that prevent people from working on their own cars, tractors, and terms of service agreements that stop us from repairing our own stuff. We are being turned into a class of permanent renters, not people who can maintain and be stewards of the things that we own. And I think that is antithetical to our identity as Americans. Right to repair bills ensure that we have the same privileges and rights that we've always enjoyed that are sort of being stripped away because folks aren't paying attention. Um, You know, pretty soon if things keep going the way they are, you know, you're not going to be able to change a light bulb in your house without having a subscription service to do it. As you get settled in Washington, D.C., what has surprised you the most? Ooh, um, well, you know, I think I had an idea that there's a lot of faceless bureaucrats, but there are people here who really are public servants. Um, They're here making, you know, less money than they could in the private sector because they care about America, they care about issues. And so that's really encouraging. Uh, what What is disappointing is that a lot of times those aren't the folks steering the ship. And so I think it's doing the work to elect folks that are going to help empower the, the folks with the the real interests, the best interests of America at the core of their motivation. And I, I'm, I'm hopeful that we're developing an electorate that can do that. And it's going to take reform. You know, it's going to take getting money out of politics. You know, most people aren't willing to subject themselves to the kind of ugliness that a, a federal race entails. And so we, we've, we've got to do more to clean up our, our, our politics. How do you do that? Well, I mean, for one thing, we need to have clear information about who's funding what campaigns. There's there's just too much money. I mean, that's that's one of the things that I think surprised me most about the campaign was how much money it takes to run a federal race. And um, I think that's just been a disaster in terms of getting normal people in office who understand what it's like to struggle to get a mortgage, much less pay a mortgage, um, and who can't, you know, can't find daycare, who can't navigate their tax system. How overwhelming has it been? Because I know when I talked with Dan Newhouse after he was first elected, he kind of described the learning process as drinking from a fire hose. And he had some previous legislative experience, but this is your first elected position. Yeah, you know, the first order of business, and I think what overwhelms a lot of new members of Congress is that you're basically starting a business, right? You've got to get your office in order. You've got to get the infrastructure, the laptops, the computer, the internet, the staff. You've got to pick up three months of backlog mail, you know, and start running with it. And and as a small business owner, um, those are all things I know how to do. Like, I think I am pretty good at hiring talented people. I'm good at putting together um, functioning teams. And and so that set of skills was something I felt really confident in. And I think that I'm going to have a really well-functioning office. I'm seeing that now. In fact, I was able to hire a bipartisan staff to even further reflect the nature of my district and ensure that I have diversity of opinions um, in my leadership process. Um, but, you know, beyond... Beyond that, um, you know, real work is going to be in, um, you know, I've spent a lot of time reading about congressional policy and procedure, um, understanding that I am fluent in the terms of 
navigating floor votes and uh, suspension of rules and all those issues. Speaking of floor votes, I, you're a Democrat, but what do you make of the Republican fight over Speaker of the House? Oh, I mean, it's just been a circus. Um, you know, I think it's beginning to become a national security concern as well. when We don't have a functioning House of Representatives. I think that there are there are a lot of people who are a lot more concerned with being a character than having character. And it's it's a disaster. So, you know, I'm hopeful that we can do the work it takes to build a set of rules and find a speaker that can allow us to have a team that works the next two years or we're going to be in Groundhog Day for the next two years. You say it's a national security risk. How so? Well, you need a House of Representatives to be. Uh, I mean, we we are one of the branches of government, right? And so, um, it, it 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 will become a, a problem. So, if there's one thing you could accomplish over your next two years in office, what would it be? I mean, one of the primary pieces of legislation I'm focused on is right to repair bills. In broader terms, what I'm trying to do here is build a Congress that looks more like America, that reflects the values. And the priorities of average Americans, you know, not the donor class, um, not not the big players, not the big dogs. And so I think that can happen in a lot of ways that are never going to make headlines and they're never going to make um, newsworthy. You know, it's not, it's not going to show up in the papers, but it, it's going to take a lot of us doing a lot of small acts to, to point this Congress back in the direction of our best values. All right, Marie Glusenkamp-Perez, newly elected representative from the 3rd Congressional District, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. We have to take another break, but when we come back, the January 6th insurrection, two years later, when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podzel. Finally this week, Friday was the second anniversary of the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. A memorial was held for the fallen officers of January 6th. At the time of the attack, Nancy Pelosi was House Speaker, and she addressed the families of the fallen. Thank you to the families for considering us worthy to share your grief, to honor your loss. These solemn remembrances come as some far-right supporters of the rioters raise millions of dollars to rebrand their image as patriots. Annie Gowan is covering for the Washington Post and spoke with Northwest News Radio's Taylor Van Sice. That's a big ask, considering the nastier details of what happened that day. Who's leading this effort and how are they spreading their message? Well, basically, the fundraising is going on in two camps. One of them is the Christian crowdfunding source uh, website called Gives and Go, where they, unlike GoFundMe, have allowed the January 6th rioters to do their own fundraising and have their own personal accounts for their defense funds. And they've raised about different, you know, all the all of the different folks who've gotten into legal trouble over, over this, and many of them have these accounts. Um, there's about $4 million in them. There's other larger umbrella groups that are also fundraising. There's one called the Patriot Fund, which has raised, fundraised about a million dollars so far for the defendants, and they've given out 600,000 of that. And we should say nearly 1,000 people are facing federal charges uh, because of the riot. But on the surface, these kind of look like the sort of good faith efforts you see for storm recovery donations or, or medical bill efforts. What kind of oversight is there with these funds? Well, I think there's a certain segment of folks, you know, on the right that say this over and over again, which is they consider these people to be prisoners of conscience. And I think that's where you get the rebranding coming in. You know, if you talk to them, they say, well, we were just protesting peacefully and we were exercising our First Amendment rights. 
you know, which sort of completely discards all of the violence and, uh, you know, the, the judges that are currently excoriating the defendants, almost all of them. And so that's kind of where I think it really still appeals to a part of the right wing, which feels like these people were just innocently protesting an election that they truly believed was, was stolen. No, there's probably not going to be a much progress uh, in convincing really far-right politicians or, or far-right activists that know these people are criminals. But what about the more moderate folks that you were able to speak with for your report, the, the moderate Republicans who, in the days after the attack, were very much opposed to these rioters? Well, I mean, I think you saw a wave, right? Because there were initially there were, there were Republicans that spoke out, and then once, you know, the political zeitgeist went the other way in terms of their own party, you know, they sort of backed off condemning the riot. I mean, the first anniversary of... The riot at the Capitol, the only Republicans who came was Liz Cheney and her, her dad, Dick Cheney, you know, the former vice president. So I think now, generally speaking, especially after the long congressional hearings where many of the star witnesses were Republicans who were, were unhappy about what happened that day, I think now that there's you definitely see a, sh- a shift to the center. Annie Gowan with us on Northwest News Radio, reporter for The Washington Post. You can find her coverage online at WashingtonPost.com. That's Northwest News Radio's Taylor Van Sice, and that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening and have a good week.